Good morning. Good to see you again. Um, we've been looking at I, Isaiah chapter 36, and it's uh, when I read the, the chilling words of uh, the first few verses of Isaiah 36. Um, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the fullest field. I cannot help thinking about what's going on in the world today in terms of Russia's modern incursion, its expansionary campaign, not only against Ukraine, but who knows more. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that as we follow this uh, um, episode in Hezekiah's reign, uh, I'm sure there are many resonances for all of us today. I believe the Lord does have a word for us, and I think the word is, is uh, relevant, especially we think, when we think in terms of the empire and uh, the empire of Assyria, the rising um, empire. Of that time, I think we have, in many ways, spiritually, an empire that we contend with, and in in many ways we are like the rebels. I don't mean this in the rebellious sense. I know that in America there is a certain uh, uh, a certain value put to being rebellious. Uh, I, it's 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 interesting how. We have that. We have that uh, penchant for us. I don't mean that so much as the fact that we are in a war that is against the God of this world. And there are regnant powers that uh, we are called to stand up to and to contend with in our life as a church. So in some ways, as we look at the, the life of the church, this series is places everything that we've learned in terms of the life of the body, the life of the household, in its proper context against the powers of the devil. And so I'd like us to turn, with, turn together to, some, uh, to Isaiah chapter 36. And as we look at Isaiah ch- chapter th- 36, I'd like to take one more, um, I believe, one more st- stab at this particular um, uh, passage of Scripture because I believe there's more for, for us here. Okay? I believe that the law wants to speak more. And uh, there's a sort of a build-up. And as we look at this, uh, I'm just going to read and then we'll pray together. Isaiah chapter 36, I'm reading from the NASB. Verse 3, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, is this, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Because you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, 
Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar. Now therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for the horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? And the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So you have this false prophecy that has a way of resonating with us whenever bad things happen to us, right? Whenever things don't turn out well. There is a false prophecy that actually plays around in our minds. That is that this is God's doing, right? God, God wants to punish me. God has raised this thing up and there's a certain inevitability about this. And there's something about, about that that kind of, it, 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 it resonates on the downside. Yeah? It, it bonds us with the enemy because the enemy resonates with us. Not everything that resonates with your soul is from God. Yeah? Resonance is not always from God. In fact, there's something about our brokenness that makes us resonate with lies. And if you don't realize this, you will take every resonance as a, thing for, as a, as a word of God. No. There's something that resonated with them. And basically what the Rab Shakeh was saying is this. You see all this, this misfortune that's happening to you? It's because God did that to you. You know? And it's a lie. But there's something about it that resonates, that makes us actually believe it, because it hits a, a broken spot in us. And this is what happens when the enemy comes against uh, us and becomes, comes against the people of God, yeah? Go up against this land and destroy, destroy it, the Lord said to me. And Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are in the wall, who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh, the emissary, said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of this great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each one his vine, and each his fig tree, and drink with the waters of his own cistern. So he's using the metaphors of Scripture. At that time, of course, much of it was not inscripturated. It was an, an oral tradition, but to, to a lot of us, we can understand that, that the language of Scripture, the language of figs, which speaks of fruitfulness, the language of wine that speaks of the, 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 the anointing and power, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the language of waters, the language of um, um, waters of his own system, the language of land. These are all the language that the Judeans and the, the Jews, uh, the, the Israelites actually, um, understood. Yeah? This is the land, that, the, the language that, that they understood. And what was happening is, was Rabshakeh was taking over the language. 
He was speaking the language of the Israelites. But as I said last week, he's speaking about it in an Assyrian accent. And what I mean by the Assyrian accent is this. The devil, a lot of times, in his empire expansion, expands in the area of language as well. And he redefines language, and he redefines biblical language as well, the language of, the, of our heart. And what he does is that he tries to actually grab hold of that and control the meanings of words and take over the, the meanings of words. He's an over-raptor. He steals. Steals, just like the over-raptor who's uh, that's supposed to have stolen eggs from other dinosaurs. So he's, 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 he's empire-like in his language. And, we, and I was mentioning uh, uh, at another meeting about how um, the Nazis were very smart, and Stalin was like that. Before he took control of a, of a nation, he took control of their language. And he created new words, or he took old words, and he put new meaning into that. And so Hitler coined another word, or rather he, he didn't coin it, he actually used this word to refer to the Jews, and he called them non-persons. Stalin did this very same thing. He called non-persons. So then the language was actually sub subjugated and it was actually stolen. And because of that, the, 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 the king, King Hezekiah, said, you don't play that game, don't speak their language. Because if you speak their language, you will be forced to use words that have been taken over by the empire. And what the empire does is that it takes spiritual words and it makes them into nothing. Kierkegaard said, you know, Jesus turned the water into wine, but we have done something that is even more powerful. We have turned the wine into water. And what he was saying basically is this, he, the world takes spiritual things that are powerful and makes it into like so much dishwasher, dish, dishwater. And that's what happens um, a lot of times. Yeah? The empire does that. And we as a company of people are a people who actually are called to do war against the empire. Yeah? Okay, let's carry on. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Make peace, verse 12, with me and come out to me and eat of his, eat of his vine. I, it's interesting how the, the, the emissary is saying, make peace with me. Basically, what the world wants to do, what the devil wants to do is to say, you make peace with this situation. Be at peace with this situation. This is a new, this, this is a new normal. Get ready for it. Yeah? You make peace with that situation. And... In order for you to be contemporary and, you to, and to be up, and up to date, you have to make peace for that situation. And you have to um, conform yourself to it. Anyway, make peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine. That's the, that's the language again of grain, uh, which 
in the in in the Old Testament always speaks about the Word of God. Yeah, the Word of God, the seed of the Word of God. Yeah, the grain, the wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered this, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Apad? These are the Syrian gods. Where are the gods of Sephatayim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand? Look at the, st- look at the stats. The stats don't give you much chance, much hope that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand, but they were silent. See, they did not play that game. They did not play that word game. They did not imbibe the semantics or the the content or the meanings of the words that that, uh, Rapshake was using. They didn't refuse to play, play that game. They refused to use words in the way that Rapshake was using them. Yeah, he refused to use language in the way that the empire was using them. They refused. Yeah? Even though it sounded like they have no answer. Do not answer him. Verse 22, Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we do not read these scripture words in a, in a private way, tucked in on our own corner, with our mind just churning over them, but we thank you that we live and read your word in the company of you and with each other. We thank you that you speak to all of us together when we meet together, and we thank you that your spirit is here not only to speak to us in our particular private situation, but you speak to us as a church with regard to the empire. We thank you, Lord, that we are not alone. And so we ask you that you speak to us, speak to us in such a way that we can hear your voice together. And as we hear your voice, we ask you that you would... uh, you unite us together. Praise your name. Praise your name. Come, Holy Spirit. Hover over us. Enter into our private, most deep spaces. In our minds, in our hearts, we welcome you, Lord. Praise your name. Praise your name. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's very interesting. I was looking at this passage again, and again, I just keep on reading and reading and reading, just praying over this passage, and sometimes um, more, more things may, 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 may kind of jump up. I believe that actually reading the scriptures are like that. You know, it's, reading scriptures is just a reading, reading like... Um, you know, you have links, you know, you have these texts and then you have this blue blue text and if you just click on it, 
it just opens up and then there's more things that open up, you know. And God speaks to us, you know, when we're reading the scriptures, it's not all black text, you know. There are certain parts in which on different days, certain parts become blue. And when you, when you, when you click on that, on that link, it just opens up and God is speaking to us through that, yeah. So watch out for the links, right? The links are really important because links are, are kind of the, the parts in which things are moving there, you know. You look at text, 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 and suddenly blue. Ooh, you click on it, and suddenly it just opens up, and God has a personal word for you, and He's speaking. So, some, so the Lord actually spoke to me about this, about empty words and, and the word rebel, rebel, or rebel, <laughs> the verb rebel, rebel. He says, your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? And I just want to bring about this, I don't want to overwork this, uh, this metaphor of the, of the empire because that's been, you know, that's been done before. And, 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 and I can sometimes think that, you know, we use the word empire so much that we just get, just get fed up of it, of the whole thing. But there is something about that. There's something about the way in which the God of this world wants to dominate everything and take everything. And actually, um, what it does is that it, sh- it shifts shapes and it actually enters into the most precious things in our heart, the heart language, and he uses our language. He uses our resonant places to try to overtake these things. And we, are, we have to be, be careful about that. Now, as a church, we are not part of the empire, insofar as we are, no matter how dinky and small and, 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 and weak we, we are, we are actually standing against the empire. We're standing up to it, not by our own strength, not because of, our, because of the fact that we are rebellious, but because of the fact that God is with us and there is a greater king. Yeah? And, so, and, so, and so what, what, what the Rabshakeh says is this, what is this with words in which you rebel against me? And what he has just done is this. Rabshake has turned it upside down and he's saying, the real kingdom is the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. You are now rebellion. You are in rebellion to the order. And what he's saying is that he's, what he's doing is that he's turning the order upside down and saying, you as, as Christians or you as worshippers of Yahweh are rebelling against order. You're rebelling against the legitimate order. And the reason why this order is legitimate is that God has actually, can't you see, given the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, success. And all other gods have been thrown into the waste, into, into the dustbin and been burned. Your own place, Lachish itself, has been completely devastated. Not only that, you yourself are under judgment of God because you destroyed all the creativity of all the all the all the all the altars that were that were proliferating all over um, Israel and Judea to such an extent that you have clamped down on worship, you've clamped down on creativity, you've clamped down on freedom to such an extent that th- there must be uh, an appeal to this God that is now judging you. That's what he's saying. So what he does is that he creates a, 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 a claim to his 
um, his imperial uh, power, authority over you. Before long, Christians will end up thinking they are the ones who are the aberrant ones. Yeah? They are the aberrations. Because something has, in a, in a very subtle way, taken the floor underneath them to such an extent that we as Christians feel very obligated to be in touch and in step with the, wor- the world. Right? It's true. It's so true that a few weeks ago, in a moment of weakness, I was getting ready to go to church. And I said, I think I should untuck my shirt. Who tucks in their shirt nowadays? (laughs) I'm just kidding. There's a way in which the enemy, and I'm not saying that was the enemy, but who knows? I don't know these things. The way in the enemy creates a should to supersede any should of God. Now, I think that the world, long ago, not recently, long ago, has torn down the building, torn down the house of morality and absolutes long ago. So that man or human beings are the measure of all things. I think that's, that's what's happened. And what it has done is that when it has taken away any kind of basis for morality or for right and wrong, uh, then what happens is that there is no basis for saying a thing is morally correct or, or right or wrong because from, from hundreds of years ago, who knows, with the French Revolution or with the Enlightenment or whatever, there has been a way in which God has no longer had any authority over man. And so, with rationalism, um, Francis Schaeffer defines rationalism this way, not just being rational. He defines it that when humankind, starting with himself as the measure or herself as the measure, he proceeds logically and discovers the world with the only reference point as not something outside of the world, but him, inside himself. Yeah? Wittgenstein says nothing has meaning unless it is measured by a measure outside of itself. We sometimes call this mimetic, a mimetic view of, 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 of the world in which the world in times past, 800 years ago, saw itself, we saw the world in terms of a standard and an order bigger than the world itself. I, I wanted to, um, to go over this with you, and um, I was told that I wasn't that clear last week. So Carl Truman um, quotes Charles Taylor, the famous philosopher, two different ways of thinking about world. There are what he calls the mimetic way, based upon the Greek word mimesis, and the poetic, poetic way. Mimesis has to do, regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning. There's meaning and purpose 
which are discovered and conformed to by an individual. The whole idea, um, maybe 800 years ago, that long, has, has to do with the fact that the, the world is created by God who has authority to give meaning. Only someone who is an infinite personal reference point can give meaning to all the different particular reference points that we have here. Does that make sense? A thing is evil because, because of the fact that there is one who is completely holy and completely righteous who is able to pronounce upon the world and to speak into it and say, this is wrong and this is right. When you take that away, then you have what you call poiesis in which the world is regarded as just raw material because we impute upon the world, we give to the world its meaning. So there was a long time ago already, the world has already decided that it would give itself meaning. It would not get its meaning from outside of the world. Does it make sense at all? So that we've moved from a mimetic um, kind of way of looking at the world in which the world is, is seen as, as self-existing before us. It, the world has meaning not because in and of itself, but because of the fact that as Christians we believe God has given it, pronounced upon it, it spoke it into being and spoke into it meaning. If you want to find meaning in life, you have to find it. You have to look for it with God. Does that make sense? And so we talk about finding meaning in life. But at some point, at some point in the world, some people call it the enlightenment. I think it, 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 it went, went a, lot, a lot earlier. At some point, it's very interesting what uh, Carl, um, Carl Truman quoting um, 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 Charles Taylor says. There's a, at, at some point, man began to experience much more control over nature. We have more control over diseases. We have more control over distances. We have more control over the farmland. We had more control over the things that we want to do. 800 years ago, we was, we, we, it was not difficult for us to see that we, 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 we were under the aegis or the authority of nature, yeah? or under the authority of God. As man became more and more powerful, more able to transcend himself, it was not difficult for the, the human imagination to believe that actually we are the authors of our own destiny. And so instead of looking to find meaning in life, we now talk about giving ourselves meaning, creating meaning, creating ourselves. Make sense? Sinivius gave me the phrase, you do you. Right? You do you. Without necessarily any reference to any authority above yourself. Yeah? And so what we have is that because of technology and because of the way in which we have more control over our bodies and all that, there is, it's easy for us to feel intuitive that we actually are the ones who can name ourselves. We are the ones that create our life. And so the, our life is like a work of art. So Nietzsche talks about life being made into a work of art against the powers, against tradition, against all that. So there's some truth in that, but, there, but, but basically what has happened is that humankind has thrown off the, the shackles of 
God or scripture or Bible or religion and all that. And so we begin to name ourselves. And so you begin to see this happening in medicine, in sexual uh, um, culture, in gender, in terms of our language, in terms of lots of things, in which we see matter as neutral. That's why we can do abortion, because it's neutral. We can do all kinds of scientific research, because matter is neutral. That is why sexual, uh, sexual mores have changed based upon the fact that our bodies are neutral, really. They're, they're raw material. It doesn't matter. There will come a time in which incest and other kinds of um, uh, polygamous arrangements will be licit, will be accepted because of the fact there is no basis to say that those things are not. And so what has happened is that we begin to actually develop a little bit of an upside-down kingdom in which what a person does with his or her own body doesn't matter. Yeah? Because long ago, the idea that our bodies are sacred has already been consigned to the rubbish heap. Right? When you think about it, the only really reasonable argument against a lot of the sexual mores that are here today and the, and the freedoms that, that that brings, so-called freedoms, is the fact that we believe as Christians that our bodies are a temple of the living God. Right? So because of the fact that our bodies are sacred, that means they are set apart by God, for God, not for ourselves, we have a different meaning for freedom. When we say freedom, I know the word freedom is bandied around a lot in, in the US. We don't exactly mean the same way other people talk about freedom as, as having free choice, autonomy. We mean by freedom, the ability to be imprisoned in God so much so that what we were intended to be, to be doing or what we were made for can be set free in us so that we can be able to do things that we couldn't do before. Amen? So there's a way in which um, the world has begun to actually name itself, right? Name its own morality, name its, 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 its meaning in life. And so we talk a lot about making our life a work of art. So, see, Nietzsche, Nietzsche saw, saw this very clearly. He says, once you've destroyed God and you, once you've killed God, there's only one thing that's left, and that is the will to power. I do what I want. I do, my, I do me. You do you. Does that make sense? Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the twist. It really isn't you who decide what's going to happen. You know who decides? It's the empire. You think you have the freedom to do whatever you want or to name things the, na- the way you want and, and, to, and to put content or put meaning into any word that you want. You think you do, but actually, in the end, it's technology. It's the government. It's whoever is controlling things behind, behind the scenes, right? It's actually not an individual freedom to be able to decide. It's actually collected, accumulated, and it's actually decided on by social media, public opinion, the regnant, of, you know, 
idea. And what we have actually is exactly what happened with the French Revolution. At first we thought it was freedom of the individual, and now it is highly oppressive. Highly oppressive. So what you have is French liberalism, very different from um, liberalism in its best sense of the word. It's, uh, it becomes um, destructive. And so I just want to say that this is, this is important because of the fact that as Sennacherib and Rapture came and imposed its power, its language, its, its morality upon um, Judea, we experience something similar. And as a church, we have to understand that as a church militant, we are not called to carry arms but to actually stand upon a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. Amen? Okay, so I just want to look at this and, and look at some of the ways in which the attack of the enemy comes upon the people of God. Okay? The attack of, we've, we've been hinting about this. We're thinking about this upside-down way in which words are, 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 are insinuated into our language and our, our, our thing. It's very interesting, see, because verse 12 says, Make your peace with me. We are, we are on Isaiah chapter 36, verse 12. Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his own vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. When you think about ways in which the enemy wants to give us an alternate promised land, uh, an alternate identity. Looks like it. In fact, it even uses the words that we treasure very greatly. Words like self-esteem. Words like creativity. Yeah. In fact, the word poiesis is a really good word because it's the word from which we get Poetry, right? It's creativity. Poesis it literally means make, make. And there's a way in which the imagination is poetic, you know? And so there's a way in which we value creativity greatly, greatly. But I sometimes feel that in our, in the spirit in which we value creativity, there can be ways in which we become like Ratchake, in which you say, it's mine. It's my creativity. It's, it's about me. It's about me. It's about my art. It's my own originality. It's my own thing. And as a result, as a result of that, creativity is a beautiful word that only God can give to us. Become something that is subverted into something that is autonomous, and actually, in the end, all about ourselves. You know? And so there's a way in which sometimes what happens is that we begin to subtly change meanings. In the medieval, medieval uh, times, um, imagination was seen as the means by which humankind can create um, images, forms, statues, art in such a way that it is 
it more rightly depicts nature and God faithfully. So that imagination was used to write poetry or write things in a way that is faithful and true to what God is. And, uh, and some um, analysts, uh, some, some uh, literary scholars say that everything changed in the Romantic period where the imagination was about my own originality, my own stuff. Yeah? Shake the, my fist to the heavens. We may not do that, but there's a way in which we can sometimes, as a, as a result of that, become less than what God has. Because we can be so concerned about our own art, our own creativity, our own, our own sphere, our own little small corner, our own gifting, that we are not freed up to find God, to look up to God. Because actually, in some ways, the medievals are correct. Because art was a worship to God. Art was a worship to God. I was listening on the Veritas Forum, uh, one very famous uh, concert pianist, and she says, I make the case that my concert pia- uh, playing on the, on the piano is an act of worship. And she said, this is why. I prepare everything I can, and I practice so that my performance would be completely up to snuff. Right? But when I'm playing on the, on, on, on the stage, I have to leave it all to God and let God do whatever He wants with it because all, all my, my, my preparation up to there cannot be a carbon copy performance on the stage. That means what I do on stage is not a complete and absolute transference of everything that I've practiced onto the stage. I have to leave it up. And it's very scary and I have to leave it up to God. And that is why I consider this worship. I put it to you that actually art is only art when it is defined by something outside of itself. By God as worship. And therefore as a Christian, we should be even more plugged in to the spirit of creativity because we are plugged into God and surrendered to God. Amen? But for that to happen, you have to be rid of your own ego. Now, I don't know of a way in which we can be rid of our ego except through the cross, through Christ, and through worship. Here's worship. Here's another way in which the devil tries to take away worship. What the devil tries to do is to use worship to either show off talent or to be something that's human being-centered my own need. I remember years, many, many years ago, before most of you, if not all of you, even joined the church, we used to have worship sessions on a Wednesday evening here. And after a while, you know, at first, a lot of people liked to come for it. But after a while, they began to be very predictable because the aim for worship, this worship, was to minister to one another. When that happened, worship was lost. You see, if you try to use worship for a human end, 
you will lose worship. And that is how Rapshake subverts precious things. You see, worship will minister powerfully. But it's almost as if you have to worship without thinking about it. It's almost as if you look, have to look at it from the side eye, you know. Lord, please worship, minister, but I'm worshipping you. You know, we call this apophatic. That means not looking at it. Not looking at our, our own personal gain, but looking to God. Worship can create a very powerful people, a mighty people. Or have you seen worship creating a group of people who are spiritual namby-pambies? Do you know why? Because it's all psychologized. Not that psychology is any, anything wrong. Psychology is a science of understanding human being. But what I'm saying is this. There's a way in which we can take a thing of God and we become like Rabshake, right? And we turn it into a thing for ourselves. Now, why does worship make a people powerful? Because when you worship, you cannot worship for how it will resonate with you. Resonance doesn't come into it. How it ministers to or make you, makes you have a, an emotional or, or aesthetic experience has nothing to do with worship in its, in, its, in its purest sense. We worship Him as a sacrifice of praise. Does that make sense? I found that there was a problem with the way in which I was getting ready for, for meetings to preach years ago. When I would enter into a, a, a meeting and everybody was worshipping, I wouldn't worship. I'd just be praying in tongues, focusing on my message. God, speak to me. Speak to me. And then the Lord spoke to me. You're focused on yourself. You're focused on your whatever you're doing. You're focused on your anointing, your own whatever it is. Worship is the, the most radical thing you can do. It will make you mighty. If you don't overcome your anxiety about yourself, if you don't worship, if you, you don't stop worshipping so that you can get something that will give you a perk, you will never be mighty. You will be using worship for your own ends. Does that make sense? How can worship make us mighty? Because this is how. When we worship, we, are come to, we come to, the, to, to the, the presence of God and we have nothing. Okay? We don't, we just, the last thing we want to do is to be focused on someone else other than our own problems. And when you come with a burden of anxiety and fear and, 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 and hard feelings, the last thing you want to do is to worship God for Himself. You don't mind worshipping God if there's a song that really hits your, your need and says, God ministered to me through that song. You don't mind that. And what will happen is that you worship God and you're looking for something that ministers to you. Ah, 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 this resonates. Ah, 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 this resonates. Rabshakeh can do that for you. We can set up songs in which we know, hmm, chances are most people will come in depressed, they'll come discouraged, they've had a hard time, they do that. And we can make the worship just go straight into the ministering part of it. I know you've been going through a hard time, but God has a good song for you. They will never make you mighty. <laughs> never make us mighty. Right? Does that make sense? 
You're just trying to hit, hit the target. It's like target practice. And as worshippers sitting in the pew, we can be people who are self narcissistic. Oh, no, not, not, not narcissistic. That's too, too harsh. It's self-centered. Does that make sense? When we worship, you know, this is the most radical thing. You're coming in, you're burdened and all that, and, and you're a preacher and you're worrying about your message. And God says, worship me for who I am and for my own sake. And you worship. And then, because of that, there's an exchange that takes place. You are drained of yourself and God puts himself in you. Right? And when that happens, you don't do you. Amen? You, God does. Actually, God does you. <laughs> God does you. Because God comes in and he anoints you the way you are supposed to be. The freedom that you want to be yourself and all that, you can forget about that. That's paltry. What God has is a vision of you that's greater than your vision for yourself. So, so there's a way in which Rabshakeh comes in and the empire tries to subvert precious things. And it subverts the precious things based upon our own need to feel calm or feel peaceful or feel that our own desires will be met. And I want to tell you that God will meet your needs in a great, greater way. He knows us better than anyone. Better than ourselves. Okay, we're going to finish. I'm going to actually have to quickly um, jump over. This This is an amazing thing. I was so struck by the fact that for the past two weeks, the Lord, you know, when the Lord gave me this chapter to share, I was surprised that he did not give me Isaiah 36 and 37 because 37 really was the answer. He just gave me some Isaiah 36. And Isaiah 36 ends up as a cliffhanger. It's very inconclusive in that sense. And this is how it ended. Verse 21, but they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh, and that was it. That's all of chapter 36. 36. Of course, I understand that the Bible is not written with these chapter, chapters, but when I prayed, the Lord gave me Isaiah 36, just impressed upon me, Isaiah 36, until last night, I saw, thank God, Isaiah 37 in my mind. And so I'm going to go into it. But it's interesting that in some, Isaiah chapter 36, it ends in silence. In silence. And the silence was not just the fact that they had no answer to give, but the silence makes us understand that, 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 that it's not in arguments or in words that nor in power, not in chariots, that our answer to rapture K must come. It was not in that. The currency of words is of no value. It is not enough for us to be a very rhetorically polished church that knows how to say all the right things that one Sunday can resonate, the next day it's gone. It's not enough. The power of rhetoric, the power of rhetoric 
is not enough. The power of words and poetry in and of themselves is not enough. And they understood that the poesis of good answers was not enough to Rab Shakeh because Rab Shakeh is saying, you can talk all you want. You can listen to all that Egypt says or Hezekiah says. But what is this confidence that you have? You rely on mere words? He was right. And so the, 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 the Shebna and Eliab, Eliashib and all that understood that there is no answer if you, if you end, end, end up using rhetoric against rhetoric. You, you, you're actually playing in the wrong realm. Yeah? And so they understood that the only way was that God show up. And they didn't want to play the game. They didn't want to win the airspace. They didn't want to create me- media that would, uh, that would be an alternative and, and a kind of a, a competition to the media, media of Assyria. They came into the place of silence. The silence is the place where God silences all the explosions and all the voices of Rabshakeh. You and I have to come to a place in worship where we enter in and all the intimidating voices are silenced. And that's what they did. See, see, what they were saying is this, no words, no arguments that we have are sufficient. No apologetics, no apologetics is enough. It can help, but it's not enough. In the end, in final analysis, we need to hear nothing. Nothing. Because nothing that we hear will be of any use unless God speaks. And so that's what they did. So let's go to chapter 37 and we will end soon. Promise. They, answered, they, they were silent and answered him not a word. In verse, chapter 37, King Hezekiah, he tears his clothes to symbolize the utter, utter despair in anything that is available to him physically. And verse 2, Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet. And they called for Isaiah. And they said to Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, rebuke and rejection. For children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus is the Lord. Do not be afraid of the words. See, words trigger. Okay? There, there's, a, there's an effect of words. Words are powerful in that sense, right? Even though we don't rely on them. Words have a triggering effect. Some words trigger us more than others. And it's amazing how a spirit of fear can just come and grip you because you just heard a word. You just heard a phrase somebody said or somebody, somebody mentioned something and it has no logical connection but you got triggered by a word. And the world understands that. Advertising understands the, the triggering effects. Some of them are really, really negative but some of them trigger sentiment. Sometimes they trigger resonance, positive resonance. But what's, what, 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 what the, uh, Isaiah was basically saying is, don't be affected by words. Don't be affected by that. 
and don't use words to try to fight back. Your beautiful words are not enough. Your, 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 your aesthetically tuned words are not enough in and of itself. Not bad. Not, en- not en- enough itself. Do not be afraid of them. Amen? So Hezekiah comes to him with absolute silence and hears only one voice and it is the voice of Isaiah. And he just says this. Okay? And it's powerful. Amen? Silence is important so that we can not only hear the word of God, but it also squashes other words. It is not only important for us to hear the word of the Lord, but it's important for us to not hear the other words. Yeah? Or else the word of the Lord is one among many other words. And you can't tell the difference between the word of the Lord and another good idea or another good piece of advice or another, another encouraging word and all that. It's too messy. It's too messy. It's not clean. And sometimes what we try to do is to help God by many, many more words and, 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 and clever words and all that and, and encouraging words. And all these things add to, add to the word of the Lord. But what they understood was this. For the power of the word of the Lord to come, there must be a silencing of all those other positive voices even. Right? The silencing not only of negative voices, but just silencing of everything so that the Lord comes. And then the Lord comes and then he says to king of Assyria, who do you think you are offending now? Who, are the thing, who do you think you are speaking to? Who do you think you are raising your, ha- your hand against? And of course, God's saying, it's against me. But in prayer, we need to come to this place in which we can see that there are only two factors. God and the enemy. We are not even in the picture. You, you know what I'm saying? That the most important thing is this, I can, so that I can hear God saying, you know what? Everything else is out of the picture. You're not even in the picture. Who is, happen- who, who is dealing now? It's God. But if you have all those other voices and all that, you don't have the silence, you will think that there are many, many other factors and God is one factor, a stronger factor out of many. No, what? They were doing is that they were silencing everything so that they could come to a place where in their heart it could resonate with the fact that this is God that is dealing with. Now, I understand that that argument can sometimes feel a little weak when I think when somebody is doing something wrong, right? When you look at what's happening in Ukraine, I think it is little comfort for me to think well, who does he think he's, he's going against? God is against you. But it doesn't come for me that much until I can see with my, my imagination, my eyes, that there's no one in the picture except God. That God's power is far greater. I need to know it not in my head. I need to encounter it. I need it to touch me. I need that power of God, right? that the onlyness of God to hit me. When I wait upon the Lord, I don't wait on an idea. I know. I know all this. I know that God is the one who's offended, that, 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 that they, are, they are offending. I know that. But I, the problem with me is that I know a lot of other things as well, and I think of all, a lot of other things. And that thought that God is being offended becomes 
One of many other thoughts. Does that make sense? And it's only a thought. But what, what's happening in prayer is this. You come into the presence of God. What, what Hezekiah does is that he brings the letter and it says he presented it before the presence of the Lord. That means God was there. Okay, there was the building, there was all the other things, there's the furniture and there's all the people around there. But as far as God was concerned, that didn't matter. You are in the presence of me. And when that happened, what Hezekiah could see was, and may I say, feel, could he feel that God was there? There. He could feel the grip, the, the grip on his shoulder. He could feel the, the, the Lord just pressing himself against that. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Not just in the head. Not just a theologically correct thought. He could feel it. Ooh. You want and I want to be waiting upon the Lord until that <laughs> happens. Not just, I know, I know the theology. Not just, I got an impression. No, it pressed against me. An impression that it pressed against me. Does that make sense? And what he did was that he began to, to realize that there is nothing to be afraid of because whatever he was afraid of was relativized. It began to be pushed out because of the presence of God. It's not enough for me to say, you don't have to be afraid. Because fear is there. Until the presence of God comes, I wait upon Him, I worship Him. And that's, what worship, that's why worship makes you mighty. Because it pushes out everything else. Until you come to a state where you know that all those things are there. You know the tanks and the guns and the war and all that. But to you, you only feel God. And when that happens, the fear goes away. And so, because of that, Isaiah, and I'm, and I'm kind of cutting and pacing because we've run out of time, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, because you pray, because you pray, I'm going to put a hook in his nose and I'll drag him out. And basically what happened is that Sennacherib heard a rumor that there was, Cush was, was actually uh, coming against him. He went out and he got completely diverted. And in the end, he was actually, he came back to his palace, he was murdered by his own son. Yeah? It's a tremendous twist, plot twist. We can only hope for that in our own particular situation uh, in Ukraine. <laughs> but what God did was this. He said to Hezekiah, because you pray. Not because you argued, not because you had the $250,000 chariots, not because you had all this nice technology, but because of because you pray. It's so powerful, isn't it, prayer? God has love for us. He's regard to our prayer. He has love to that. And I'm going to do my miracles because you pray. Huh? Because I pray. That's it. Because you pray. Wow. How much God loves us. Amen? And let's pray. Bless your name, Lord. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come in every situation against any enemy. We thank you, Lord, that you cause us to be a church militant, not in the worldly sense, but we do experience the press of the enemy. 
you do experience the overshadowing of the empire and the ways in which powerful words have lately become really weak and become diluted. But we come back to you, Lord, right now. And we say you are the only one, your only hope. I want to invite you to just reflect and talk to God right now. Is there a way in which you've just had no time to experience, and I use the word cautiously, the feel of God? And what I mean by that, by that objective press of God's presence upon you. Because you pray. I'll set a hook on his nose and drag him the other way. Bless your name. We thank you, Lord. We want to retrieve back precious things of you. Take our creativity. Take our gifts. Take our heart, our love. Take the broken flesh of our own existence and make it yours, Lord, we pray. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Our moments, our time, our talents, everything, our substance. We thank you for all these things. Lord, we ask you in your presence. To control the agenda right now. In our church and in our lives. Commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.